From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Anthony Albanese goes to Washington next week for a state visit. The talks between the Prime Minister and President Joe Biden will canvas progress on implementing the AUKUS agreement and the latest American reading on China and the situation in the Asia-Pacific region. But of course, at the centre of their discussion will also be the Middle East. The President will have just returned from his visit to Israel and will brief the Prime Minister on the situation, which is worsening by the day. Kim Beasley is a former Labor Defence Minister and a former Australian Ambassador to the United States, and he has a continuing close interest in international affairs. He joins us today. Kim Beasley, let's start with the specifics of the Albanese trip. How significant is this visit and what will the Prime Minister be seeking from it? Well, look, we've got a lot to move along. I think probably the most important thing, to the, at least to me at the moment, to move along is the processes by which uh, the um, approvals are given for the export of nuclear materials. Those are uh, associated with the, the build-up of support facilities most immediately, but in the long term, the uh, the submarines. So that's enormously important. And I see that uh, Kevin Rudd drew attention to his complaints about um, dawdling in Congress on the matter. But I, at the moment, the Congress is not actually capable of producing anything. So, uh, so that would take a while, I would think. That would be one. The second thing that I think that he'd want to do would be to get a pretty clear picture of uh, where the situation in the Middle East is going, because that is drawing down American capabilities that uh, at least some of which would be found in the Pacific in, uh, in normal circumstances. Two carrier battle groups is no small thing, and I think they've got a brigade of Marines as well attached uh, offshore and the it's a powder keg uh, what is there in the Middle East at the moment which could either peter out or go hog wild and um, we have uh, some interests in the area uh, not huge our interests are in the Indo-Pacific but uh, wherever our ally finds itself drawn intensively into a situation that is, of course, a matter of concern for us. Then thirdly, you'd have similar sorts of discussions about the situation in Ukraine, because um, that is uh, that is also currently under threat in Congress, at least our, uh, the contribution of the West to it is under threat in Congress. And then after that, uh, and this is not necessarily the order, he really wants uh, an intensive discussion on the situation in what others would call the Far East, to us, the Near North, and uh, we, the situation with China, with Taiwan, uh, with trade. And I would hope that he'd want to talk to him about critical minerals because Australia is really poised now to make very substantial steps in processing. We could be of enormous benefit to the rest of the globe if there is decent support given the mining industry as they move into processing what it is they're mining in critical minerals and rare earths. That's That ought to be enough. 
Sounds a lot. Let's drill down into it uh, in a bit more detail. Firstly, the uh, AUKUS agreement. Where is that up to? We do know that, uh, as you mentioned, there's been some hold-up. Kevin Rudd's criticised that. But are the real problems in getting the necessary approvals or is this just a system working slowly? Well, it is. It's the character of Australian political debates that uh, great credence is given to henny pennies. And um, so uh, anything that looks like a bit of a hold up here or there immediately has folk cry, hey, it's all over, AUKUS collapsing. Uh, you see that uh, quite routinely. Um, I've always thought that it's going to be hard but doable to get all the ducks in a row in relation to approvals given the huge say that Congress has over that sort of movement. Remember that we are almost 10 years away from the delivery of the first of the American submarines that we're buying. And uh, all sorts of questions have been raised in Congress, mostly around not so much the transfer of technology. That's where I expected there to be a lot of concern uh, because these are the American crown jewels. But um, but about the ability of the United States to shed a few um, uh, Virginia-class submarines in circumstances where their numbers have gone down and they're trying to push them up. But the uh, a lot of the concern about that is a bit out of date. It's sort of based on stats that were there in the immediate aftermath of uh, the COVID epidemic. Since then, the Americans have made great strides in recruiting uh, an additional workforce. For example, an electric boat in Connecticut, which is the main ground for producing or the main area for producing Virginia-class submarines. Uh, They had about 3,500 there, working there who have just signed a, a new agreement, which is a highly attractive one for uh, workforces elsewhere and uh, with a five-year effective, uh, well, no strike clause in reality. It's a five-year agreement before they renegotiate. But they have recruit, they're recruiting this year 5,300 more, Ameri- more workers uh, to, uh, to work their submarine facilities. That's huge. And you might say, well, that's a ridiculous uh, number to contemplate you being able to do, particularly the criteria that you establish for the workforce. But so far, they've recruited 4,000 and we're only up to uh, October. So they're likely to get the numbers that they said they would. That dramatically increases production of the class of submarines. Probably it will take it above to a year uh, completion. Doing that, I think the congressional opposition will drop away, but the uh, the proof of the pudding is not necessarily uh, needed to be delivered this year. Uh, they can do it a bit further down the line. So I'm actually quite confident about that, uh, despite uh, uh, the ambassador's misgivings. Um, but I'm glad he's got the attitude that he has because one of the jobs he has is to go around ringing alarm bells in uh, in, in the uh, American capital. I mean, pillar two of AUKUS is, is pretty easy to deliver and, and we're, we're, because we've all got 
collaborative arrangements in place uh, for most scientific cooperation. Pillar one is the biggie, that's the submarine, and uh, that's what people have been anxious about. But I think there is a fix to the issues which have thus far emerged and caused some angst amongst American congressional leaders. I always expected this because basically this is very hard. The, the one place where the United States has massive superiority over all comers is underwater capability. And it is, it is definitely the crown jewels of the American capability, the crown jewels of a guaranteed second strike capability, which is important for stable deterrence, uh, and uh, a, a certainty that they can operate underwater in any sort of combat environment in a way that makes life extremely difficult for those who would be opposed. And um, and that they would give that or, or let Australia, they wouldn't give it to us, but let Australia access it, paying for it. That's not where a lot of them want to be, to be frank. That's not, they don't want to be, not, that's got nothing to do with Australia. Uh, that's got everything to do with the advantage. So it is a huge sacrifice on America's part that they're prepared to do, the, or a huge gesture of trust. So uh, you, you do know that the administration is not the only power locus in the American governing structure. Uh, Congress is co-equal and um, they, you're always likely to find one or two in Congress who don't think this is a terrific idea. As you would know from your own experience on a whole lot of issues. Now, going back to the Middle East, I know you've made the point that it's uncertain how things will play out there, but what is your expectation and what sort of uh, view do you think the president will be presenting to the Prime Minister after uh, Biden comes back from his visit? Very hard to tell because a lot of what is going on at the moment in the Middle East is it's it, it, firstly it's intensely active. You can see it from senior American figures who are constantly there, and you can bet that uh, they are a bagatelle compared to the communications which are, uh, are, are crossing the uh, uh, the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Every now and then something pops its head up, like there's a a, a head pops up about the possibility of the extraction of hostages um, via the Egyptian entry into Gaza and maybe other people from Gaza and uh, that uh, which is something the US is clearly very much encouraging something that Hamas is would be really opposed to not the hostages necessarily because they'd only go if Hamas said that was so but Hamas is trying to hold everybody in place they were trying to stop people moving south after the Israelis told them to exit the northern part of Gaza. They want to hold all the population in Gaza, uh, in all parts of Gaza. And um, the Israelis have, shall we say, on the on mobilization there, they've hastened slowly. Uh, they've definitely putting a lot of troops in place, but they've also got to worry about the northern border. So there'd be a calculation that needs to be made. Is Iran prepared to, at this point of time, 
sacrifice its great card against an Israeli attack on Iran, which is the threat from Hezbollah, who are much more effective militarily uh, and in terms of their armament than, uh, than Hamas or really anybody of, uh, of the Palestinian organizations. Hezbollah is a king hell horror. But one, it, it's a sort of once massively used, once massively gone weapon. So the Iranians are talking about it, but uh, I'm not sure how whether the Iranians are really moving to say we'll use that capability to support what's being done by Hamas in Gaza. I hope that um, that sense of restraint is reinforced. I hope that um, uh, Biden is able to talk through with Netanyahu what gives him confidence, what would give the Israelis confidence. He will probably not um, uh, insist on Israel attacking in Gaza. The problem is that virtually none of Hamas's capability is on the surface. It's virtually none. All of it is in 30 years worth of very deep tunnels. And uh, those tunnels usually come up in uh, mosques, hospitals, schools, churches, you name it. So the, if you like, the, the outward presence of the tunnels is a presence in extremely difficult target sites uh, because the, the uh, Hamas is heavy on human shields. I think um, it's going to be complicated. That is what Biden is going to talk through. I've got to tell you, Biden knows a lot about the Middle East. Uh, I used to see Biden modestly regularly when I was ambassador to the um, to the US. And he was enormously impressive in his knowledge on Middle Eastern matters. I remember him having a, a most interesting discussion with uh, then Foreign Minister Bob Carr, which I attended on um, a, a shift in Australia's position from uh, opposing the Palestinian resolution in um, uh, in the UN, the annual resolution, to uh, abstaining, which really infuriated the Americans when, uh, when that was done. But uh, Biden explaining his perception of Palestinian politics and attitudes it was enormously sophisticated. We all get caught up in this uh, Republican propaganda. Would you, and it's emanating from Republican. I think these days you can say it is obviously untrue. So uh, the propaganda is that the president is mentally falling apart. Has to be said that on this area, he had great acuity. And that is what I think that... Uh, will be on full display for Biden. Biden moving into the Middle East is a totally confident man. He is confident he knows all the nuances and confident that when he gets the intelligence about what is actually happening on the ground, he'll have an erudite opinion on it. Well, it's quite a bold decision, isn't it, to go, especially into uh, such a dangerous situation, but also when the stakes are high in terms of his international performance. I think when you get to Biden's age, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm only about five or six years off it. In the end, one cares less about your survival in these sorts of circumstances. 
you can you sense that you can afford great courage. And I think Biden's got a lot. And um, he is not going to be worried about a rocket dropping on top of him. Mind you, I mean, the Americans will certainly be putting warnings out in all sorts of directions uh, along the lines of dead president, massive obliteration. So he should be pretty safe. It's a shame that he can't see uh, Abu Mazen, uh, the um, Palestinian uh, president, but he has decided to go off the air for three days after this um, blow-up Baptist hospital, which Israel denies responsibility for, so does Hamas deny responsibility for, but uh, Abu Mazen has assigned responsibility and therefore he won't see Biden. That would be very useful if he could. But going into, um, he'll go then to Jordan and I think Egypt, and that's a, a good thing for him to be doing because really uh, Jordan and Egypt, above all, have to be kept on side with uh, what it is that is American-supported strategy in uh, Gaza. Now, you also mentioned, uh, and of course, this will be quite central to uh, the Prime Minister's interests, that uh, there would be discussion of the region. And clearly in that China's uh, intentions, Anthony Albanese goes to the Pacific Forum quite soon. What do you think of uh, the Americans' present stand in our region and also of China's obvious uh, expansionism where it can of its influence among the Pacific Islands? Well, he, the, the Americans are very sensitive to it. The Americans themselves are engaging more and more in the South Pacific. Hitherto, they've tended to leave that up to us. But there's probably an understanding that they're going to have a bit, to, a bit have to do a bit to, more because Maybe that, they, uh, that we don't have quite the level of cred that we used to have years ago in the South Pacific. So there's a lot to be talked about there. I, I think the American intention at the moment is, while certainly being supportive of Taiwan, they're supportive in a way that they hope uh, will keep the situation uh, between China and what it considers to be its errant province on a low uh, bubble rather than a boil. And um, I, because I don't think either the US or China wants this to break out, and certainly not us, wants this to break out into a major confrontation. So I... American policy on on the uh, on China on on the uh, on Taiwan is trustworthy, I think, from uh, both uh, from all of the, the parties interested. I think he will uh, be pretty pleased, Biden, with uh, and Albanese will be interested. The character of relations at the moment between Japan and South Korea. That's been a worry to the Americans for years and years. The mutual hostility of their two best allies uh, north of the uh, equator and the fact that uh, that unified view is, is really important for the US position 
in the northern Pacific. That seems to be making good progress in recent months. So uh, that will certainly be uh, something, I think, that both Biden and uh, Albanese will want to uh, Albanese will want to get a bit of a clearer picture from the Americans on what needs to happen there. So Indo-Pacific politics will uh, feature large, but I've got to say, I suspect the president may be somewhat distracted. And just finally and briefly, Kim Beasley, on The Voice, the referendum result, your state of WA voted heavily against. What do you think are the implications of this referendum's defeat for Australia's image abroad? When I say how terribly depressed I am by the result, I mean, I haven't quite yet fully observed it because this is a potential to be damaging. See, they, everybody around us knows that uh, they've always had a view about Australian governments and some governments are seen as good and some governments are seen as bad and all that sort of thing. So you can recover ground. This is not about government. This is about us. It's about we as an Australian people. And it's uh, not actually a good ad in the, uh, in the region around us that our response would be, um, ungenerous. Now, the people come out and say, oh, come off it. That's just elite thinking. It's got nothing to do with the streets. That's true. I don't think anybody in the countries around us, or for that matter, in the United States, will be giving a minute's thought uh, to the referendum and its result. But every single elite will be. And it's actually elites that make decisions. And, um, I, you know, I saw mockery of a New York Times editorial uh, the other day saying, oh, the New York Time, Times only represents elites. Yeah, it's all the Democrats. They see it as their paper and a fair bit of the independents, probably a majority of Americans. You'd be a dancing idiot to make a conversation like that as though what they had to say didn't matter. And certainly all the people will be looking at our submarines and everything else will be reading the New York Times. So, uh, so there's the prospect there. The South Pacific made very clear, I think you've seen statements from their leaders, that they were looking to Australia to do something really good with it. It hasn't been done. So I don't know really what the impact is going to be and we may not see the impact for a long time. But one has a feeling that the result will sit in the backs of the minds of the people whom we try to influence. And that's not a good thing as the years go by. Also, it's not something we can do much about. I can do something about it as a West Australian, because West Australian uh, dealings with Aboriginals are much better than in the East. Uh, we are the native title state. 80% of Western Australia is covered by some form of native title, about half of it full-blown native title, the rest in two small tea treaties that they have with the, uh, the Noongar group, the nation, group of tribes, and the Southern Yamaji. And um, these are the case of the Noongars. I think the, they've got very little land that they can actually claim in the terms of native title. But they will get about, they're getting about three billion to, to do some, some useful things with it. I don't know what the Southern Yamaji are getting, but I think it's about something similar. 
So West Australia is the native title of the state, 80% of it covered by some form. And if you take it by area, that is 90% of native title in Australia. Doesn't really exist anywhere else. So when people say falsely about the proposition that it had come for land, that was so extremely dumb and so extremely ignorant because we do have legislation which does place Aboriginals in a position to claim land, but that is within a, a, a sort of a, a context, a limited context, as determined by the High Court. And as it's turned out, this means basically a lot in Western Australia and not much elsewhere. Though I do think elsewhere they can take notice of the two small T treaties we have here and try and negotiate those with different Aboriginal nations in the uh, in the eastern states. It, the, the thing that disappoints me about it is this, it's results so discourteous. This is only on the agenda, not because of ALBO or, uh, or the Australian government, it's on the agenda as a result of a process put in place by Malcolm Turnbull, which was to uh, have that huge meeting of Aboriginal leaders at Uluru, and they are the ones who asked for it. They didn't ask for much. All they asked for was, a, if you like, a chamber from which they could speak and that we would listen to. No control over anything. But we turned that down. And that's another problem for us internationally because they know that not internationally that not much was being asked for. And what little was being asked for was uh, not granted. You know, the I was depressed by the way you know, race seemed to be a factor in discussion about this whole proposition. This whole proposition had nothing to do with race. It had absolutely everything to do with originality. Who was here? Well, they were here for 70,000, have been here for 70,000 years, the Aboriginals. Uh, when the Aboriginals came here, not only were there no white men in Australia, there were no white men anywhere. White pigmentation has been a product of evolution in the last 30,000 years. So 60 to 70,000 years ago, um, there was no, uh, there were no whites around. I, um, so, you know, Aboriginals I always used to say know exactly pretty much the structure of their social organization and beliefs and practices uh, at their origins 70,000 years ago, we have not got a clue, but we do know one thing. And that is at that point of time when the Aboriginals came here, our ancestors were black. So it's, a, uh, it's, it's such a sad outcome and it is so noticeable in the region around us. Kim Beasley, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today and share your insights. Always good to catch up. That's all for today's Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.